My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Dolly Chug is an award-winning psychologist at New York University. She studies how and why most of us, however well-intended, are still prone to race and gender bias, as well as what she calls bounded ethicality. Dolly's work has been covered on The Today Show, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Goop Podcast, NPR, Dr. Phil, and other media outlets. And Dolly's TED Talk was named one of the 25 most popular TED Talks of 2018 and currently has more than 5 million views. Prior to becoming an academic, Dolly worked at Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, and Time, Inc., Dolly earned a psychology and economics degree from Cornell University and an MBA, MA, and PhD from Harvard. I hope you enjoyed learning from Dolly Chug today, because I always do. Dolly, it's so great to reconnect again today. We spent a great afternoon together at NYU a few years back, so I'm excited to talk mm-hmm. again today. Yeah, come on back. Oh, I'd love to. Uh, we just love New York City and uh, hope to be out there again soon. You've had an excellent career, Dolly, and as you think back on the lessons you've learned from your research what lessons would you most like to pass on to others? Mm. I I love the question. I love this idea of thinking about what to share. Um, I think the thing that's been most useful for me now, and I think will continue to be sort of in my future self and hopefully my children and the way I'm raising them, is, is this idea of thinking about what a good person is and letting go of a, the notion of a good person being this like static entity, um, which is funny to think of as a parent because I think before this research, I would have been like, oh, I'm just gonna raise, I wanna raise good people. Um, but I think now I, I'm i more oriented towards, I wanna raise kids who who are equipped to, to take, feedback when they uh, are told by others that that they haven't lived up to a good person's standard, like they've said something that they didn't intend to be racist that is racist, or they've, um, you know, cut a corner thinking it was no big deal, but it is a big deal. And like to be equipped to accept that feedback, learn from it, grow from it and do better the next time. Um, a lot of which, you know, the umbrella term that uh, Molly Kern, Max Bezerman, Madhuring Banaji and I have, have put out in our work is bounded ethicality. The idea that just like the human brain has limitations on how fast it can process information, how much information it can store um, that affect the quality of our decision-making. So we end up you know, more likely to buy the cereal level, the cereal at eye level than the cereal that we have to bend over and get or look up to get, uh, even though that might actually be the cereal we want. Uh, just like bounded rationality predicts that kind of like um, systematic and predictable uh, limitation in our decision making. Uh, bounded ethicality predicts similar limitations in our ethical decision making and. Um, I think I've found that helpful. It, it's liberating because it means that you don't feel like, oh my God, I got something wrong. I must be the most horrible person in the world. You think, oh my gosh, I got something wrong. I must be human. But ideally, 
we don't let ourselves off the hook at that point and be like, oh, I must be human, throw up my hands. It's, I must be human. I also, as a human being, can do better and can grow. And that's sort of the path that I, I, I've tried to pivot towards based off of my research. And I, I think others have found useful as well. Yeah, what has most surprised you about this research into bounded ethicality? Um, I guess it's 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 I think one of the things is like the this isn't my research personally, but my research builds off of the the work on moral identity. Um and and that research shows that that you know by and large most people or many people, I should say do care about feeling like a good person, seeing themselves as a good person, being seen as a good person. Um, what tends to vary is how we define good person. And that's kind of interesting to me that like, and I, I'm not sure I would have predicted it, that you know, your white supremacist sees himself as a good person and your Nazi sees himself as a good person. And, um, that just on average, most people see themselves as good people and and care about that identity. I, I found that kind of surprising. Yeah, really interesting. It reminds me of uh, the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And oh, it's yeah. talking about, you know, like murderers and uh, notorious criminals and, you know, talking about how all they wanted to do was just provide the nicer things in life to people. And, you know, yeah. just, uh, I'm a you know, I've just lived the existence of a hunted man for just trying to make the world a better place while they're murdering people. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's really fascinating. Like it's, um, the human mind, mind is incredibly malleable. Like we can, we can sort of make almost anything kind of fit yeah. if we, if we are motivated enough to do it. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think just kind of that, like it's, it, it's, it's psychology 101 really, but it, you know, when applied in this domain, that's so charged around ethics and how we treat people, it kind of takes on this extra gravity. So how can people safeguard themselves against these sort of interpretations that, you know, they are ethical when in fact they're not? Yeah. Well, it, it's, it seems like the, the, best way to safeguard ourselves, and this includes things like unconscious bias, is to, to have systems that help safe. It's not for us to safeguard ourselves, it's to have systems safeguard us. And so, um, you know, it, it, and, and it works in reverse that a lot of like biases, for example, perpetuate because of systems, not because we're individually doing, making the decision to be biased time and time again, but because systems we're part of and that we're not actively undoing are perpetuating the bias. Um, so, so that's, and so systems could be everything from, um, you know, creating uh, behavioral competencies in a hiring process. So it's not just quote unquote fit or like, do you, do you, are you kind of a good cultural match or, you know, did you come in through someone I trust and know in my network? Um, it's here are the things, the behaviors we'd like to see in our job. And do you have examples of ways in which you've demonstrated that or have, have, can show the potential to demonstrate that? Like that would be a, a system that would potentially reduce bias in hiring. Um, or, you know, I've, I'm sitting here, I've got this like little habit tracker thing in front of me. Um, you know, my dentist, every 
visit, what does your dentist tell you to do? You need to floss more, right? And like, I know, I don't need to be told that again, but honestly, like until I did a little habit tracker thing, I, I mean, I'm looking at four days in a row here uh, <laughs> on my habit tracker because there is something so pleasing about the check mark and the satisfaction of that. And that's a system that's, and that, that's not necessarily ethically oriented, but it's an example of how systems are often more powerful than individual desires or intentions. Yeah, so I've been teaching business ethics for the last several years, and we spend quite a bit of time on ethical culture and the importance of the mm. formal and informal systems. Yeah. Because it is so easy to just, well, first of all, in the first part of the class is, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the course, is we, we talk about, you know, consequentialism versus deontology. And it's amazing yeah. how you can really justify almost anything using consequentialist logic. It's so easy to just play with, you know, the different weights uh, yeah. for, for ethical behavior. And so I love this idea of, uh, you know, I, I talk about it in terms of an organizational culture. I love this idea yeah. of thinking about the systems in our personal lives to help us not rationalize the unethical decisions we might make. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea is to not, we're all overloaded and overwhelmed and overtaxed. It's its its rarely going to work to just say, okay, try harder or slow down. I mean, I'm not saying it'll never work, but its, it's that's not a scalable solution over time or over people. So um, I think the, 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 the idea of seeing what systems can support us related to that, and it's going to seem like I'm contradicting myself, but I think these two things are connected. You know, I've talked about psychological literacy being valuable, and that's just the idea of um, going from a mindset of assuming that because I care about being a good person, that that means I am always acting that way. Like that's, that's, there's, nothing in the field of psychology that would support that as a claim. Yet I think many of us, like there's a, there's a pretty widely had society, held societal belief that that's how it works. Um, so psychological literacy, just like we need financial literacy, you know, to understand that, that uh, how compounding works and how interest works, like just basic principles, just a base, some basic principles around how the human mind works, that it can be influenced by situations, that it's not always consistent um, over time and over different circumstances, that uh, social pressures are incredibly powerful. Um, that kind of psychological literacy, I think, sets us up to be able to see the ways in which we, we sort of fluctuate in our behavior and to be more open to the, the usefulness of systems and not be offended by them. I really like that term. Uh, in in my classes, I, I seem to spend at least one or two class periods just really focused on kind of the shortcomings of the brain and our perception, just to drive home the point that we all make mistakes and we're all influenced uh, often subconsciously by uh, our perceptions. Uh, so I like this idea of being psychologically literate, aware of yeah. this so that we can try to combat some of these biases. Exactly. You know, and another metaphor I've heard people use, is like understanding that if you uh, drink, it will affect your ability to drive. And knowing that 
doesn't mean that you're off the hook when you drive drunk. It it means you're more responsible, not less responsible. Not like, oh, I like, couldn't control it. How could I control my reflexes when I was under the influence? It was like, well, you could control it by not being under the influence or or not getting behind the wheel when you're under the influence. Um, and I think it's similar here. Like when you have the psychological literacy, you can be more accountable and and take the appropriate actions. Yeah, really interesting. And maybe last question: How did you get into this line of research? You know, I mean, the the very um, short answer is I had advisors I really wanted to work with, and that was partially driven by their incredible mentorship skills. And so that's Max Bazerman and Mazarin Banaji. Um, and, and that was the leading the leading uh, thing. But but I also was very interested in their research. And so I think that was part of the unconscious draw towards them as mentors was um, having, you know, always been sort of an insider outsider in my own life uh, because of identities I hold. And having always kind of cared a lot about how I show up as a good person, yet been kind of privately mystified as to why, I, you know, I don't always do it. Um, and so, yeah, I think it was a combination of opportunity, mentorship, and genuine uh, interest through personal lived experience. Well, what a great approach and, and lesson to just strive to be a good person and raise good children and help other be good ethical people all within this context of, you know, we all mess up and we're all so prone and easily misled. Wow. And so the importance of being psychologically literate and then not just knowing, but trying to do and combat. So, uh, well, Dolly, yeah. this is so great. It's, again, it's so great to reconnect. Thank you for sharing your time. Thank and let's you. Stay. I look forward to sharing these with others. Oh, what a legacy. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nickels and Dimes. What a great perspective from Dolly Chug. Just as our brains are limited in how quickly they can process and store information, our brains are also limited when it comes to ethical decision making. But by using systems, we can safeguard ourselves against some of our biases. So for example, rather than just hiring for fit and possibly perpetuating inequality, we can formalize the hiring system and hire for behavioral competencies. Just as we need financial literacy to understand finance and how to invest, we also need psychological literacy to understand ethics and how to behave ethically. It's a simple idea. Please take it seriously. Nate Mickle here with a couple requests. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star review on your podcast player. Lastly, if you're like me and want to remember all of the lessons shared in previous episodes, visit the list of lessons page on my website, natemickle.com, to see all of the lessons that each previous guest has shared. Thanks for your support.